Hi there. This is episode number two of the Stuff Adventist Should Know podcast. And I just wanted to thank everybody who has supported the podcast so far. All of you who have taken time to write reviews on iTunes means a lot to me. That is just super cool. In fact, it was totally unexpected since the podcast only has one episode. Also to the people who shared it out on social media, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you're not able to find the podcast on Twitter, it's because the name Stuff Adventist Should Know is too long. Uh, therefore, it can be found under the name SDA Stuff Podcast, and the same goes for Facebook. Thank you for joining me. Please enjoy. If you're wondering how many cantaloupes tall you are, just Google it. But if you're an Adventist and you're wondering if Adventists are fundamentalists, you've come to the right place. Today on Stuff Adventists Should Know, are Adventists fundamentalists? When you think of fundamentalism, what comes to mind? At least this is what comes to my mind, but are Adventists fundamentalists? Sometimes it seems like it depending on what church you show up at on Saturday morning. For pretty much the entire existence of this denomination, Seventh-day Adventists have been kind of hard to categorize. Are we Protestants? Are we Evangelicals? Are we Christians? Well, we definitely consider ourselves Christians since we believe in Jesus. Uh, we are Protestant Christians, which means we believe that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And more specifically, are we evangelical? Yes and no. There's four requirements according to the National Association of Evangelicals to be evangelical. And yeah, we actually match with those requirements. Technically, we are evangelical. However, that name also assumes a lot nowadays. For example, many evangelicals are determinists and dispensationalists and postmillennialists, and most are eternal damnationalists, which is a word I just made up. There is a debate in the church on whether or not we should call ourselves evangelicals, but for now it's just not the best theological description of Seventh-day Adventists. Another category that some might be tempted to squeeze us into is Christian fundamentalism. Because we've associated ourselves with various groups of Protestant Christianity, as well as certain political parties, we begin acting and speaking their language and looking a lot like them. So I went to an expert for the answer to this question. Is this denomination fundamentalist? So we should be clear on our terms. Uh, the popular media and the press often uses the term fundamentalism to mean any person of faith who takes their sacred writings seriously. Dr. Miller is a professor of church history at the seminary at Andrews University. He has degrees in theology, law, and American religious and legal history. And he recently published a chapter in the Oxford Handbook of the Bible in America about this very topic. He defines fundamentalism as a certain branch of evangelicalism a subset of conservative Christianity um, that is particularly committed to a kind of uh, verbal inerrancy in scriptures. I think this is a good definition because it relates to, um, at their base, the fundamentalist approach to truth. So rather than theology and doctrines defining what fundamentalists really are, 
Dr. Miller is saying that it's more about the process of arriving at their theology and their doctrines that makes a real fundamentalist. And spoiler alert, Dr. Miller does not think we are fundamentalists. My view is that Adventism in its original DNA and at its core is not fundamentalistic. We're open to these other sources of truth. Uh, we believe that faith is important. We have this overarching great controversy, God's character theme. But we've lost sight of the theory of it. And so most Adventists are not, by nature, they're not committed fundamentalists. And they're not liberals either. But it's not clear to them at times why we're not. I get most of them get why we're not liberals, because we take the Bible more seriously than that. But less of them are clear on why we're not fundamentalists. And this is kind of where we're going to go this episode. We're going to explain why we are not fundamentalists and tell the story and the history behind the movement of fundamentalism and Adventism's navigation through the birth of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, the conservative Christian fundamentalism, actually was quite related to liberalism in that both liberals and fundamentalists embraced a foundationalist view of truth. This is where things start getting a little bit deep, deeper than what I'm used to. So you might want to pay close attention. And what is foundationalism? Foundationalism is a philosophical system many people trace back to Descartes. The idea that I think, therefore I am came from this guy. For something to be accepted as truth, we need to be able to absolutely demonstrate it. And if we want a firm foundation for our beliefs, we have to come up with that level of objective certainty for whatever we believe. Then on these firm, certain foundations, we can build our scaffolding of truth. And in the 19th century, this kind of approach to truth became important. It became popularized through the success of the scientific method. You know, so it was believed that those things you could touch and test and measure would be those things you could believe. So just think of foundationalism as the philosophical scientific method. So a system like Christianity that took faith seriously was um, somewhat handicapped at that point, because what, you're going to believe in important things based on faith? And um, Christians responded primarily in one of two ways, and this is where you get the liberals and the fundamentalists. Now, listen closely. This is super interesting to me, because what Dr. Miller is explaining shows the fundamental differences between liberals and conservatives. Sure, the two groups believe almost polar oppositely, but it's the system by which they get to those beliefs that separates them. The liberals essentially said, well, this is true. We can't have certainty about those things that we can test and see. The Bible is an ancient book. We don't even have the original autographs. It's been transmitted and translated. So where we get certainty is in our experience, our internal certainty. It's a subjective thing, but nobody can take it away. Nobody can touch it. So that's the liberal system. Conservatives said... Well, that becomes a bit too subjective, right? It removes us from contact with the real outside world. We believe that you can have absolute certainty because of the absolute reliability and proofs and propositions of the Bible. And this is where uh, verbal inerrancy came into play, not into being. It had always been it had run around for a few centuries in certain Calvinist circles. So here's inerrancy. For Christians who needed 
a foundation to base everything they believed, this was the answer. Verbal inerrantists believe that the literal words of the Bible are the chosen words of God. Therefore, the actual written words are infallible or inerrant, verbal inerrancy. You might be thinking, don't Adventists believe this? The answer is that some Adventists believe this, but the official position of the church does not hold this view of inspiration. Verbal inerrancy upholds verbal inspiration, which means that God dictated every word in the Bible word for word and determined its meaning. We believe, as Adventists, in more of a thought inspiration. And again, there's other views, but this is the the main position of the church. God inspired the Bible writers with the inspired idea, and the author had the freedom to choose the best words to communicate that inspired idea. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about some examples of some hairy situations you can get into when you interpret the Bible with this verbal inerrancy interpretation. So one group sort of, everything became internal and subjective. The other group was insistent on a perfectly objective external criteria of truths. And you can see perhaps both would be an extreme that would be difficult to, would have its own pitfalls. And uh, Adventism by its nature was neither of those things, but embraced concerns reflected by both those things. And in my paper, I um, refer to a quote by Ellen White. Everyone's familiar with it, but when you put it in this historical context, it becomes clearer the significance of it. She'll talk about um, that there is evidence for what we believe, and there's a lot of evidence for it. Um, history, prophecy, uh, there, is, there are things we can point to that support our faith. But, so she's sounding like a bit of a fundamentalist, But then she says, she says, we have to rely on evidence, not on demonstration. We cannot prove these things, but if people want to doubt, they can. But then she says that there's an evidence that's open for all, and that's the evidence of experience. So you can go so far with objective external evidence and knowledge, you can't absolutely prove it. But you can then step in and taste and see, and you can have internal experiences that will verify those things that you have seen objectively. And you can have certainty in that sense. But it's not the certainty that the fundamentalist wants where you can absolutely prove and demonstrate it all objectively. It's um, something there's evidence for which you then experience, which brings you to a personal certainty. And so that would be the first point, is that Adventists weren't foundationalists Maybe they weren't anti-foundationalists, but maybe they were non-foundationalists. Some have called them weak foundationalists, but were willing to see a role for faith being played in those things we know to be true. The second thing that makes us non-fundamentalists is the fundamentalists tended to say there's one source of moral and theological truths, and that's the Bible. And that's the only meaningful source of truths about God and morality. Because when you say the Bible is the only source of moral power and truth, you're ruling out the revelation of God through any other means. Adventists are not fundamentalists because we believe in both the book of Scripture and the book of nature. And nature included, well, the natural world, but also human nature and human experience. And um, on this point, Adventists, again, were very clearly not fundamentalists. 
In one place in Christ's Object Lessons, she talks about um, the Christian's need to be familiar with the Word of God. She says, dash, the written word, the book of nature, and God's dealings with humanity. So she's willing to call the Word of God both the written word and more broadly the book of nature and our own, our own experiences with God. That's a very non-fundamentalist thing to say. Yeah, wouldn't that sound a little bit heretical to some Adventists today? <laughs> well, some people view it with suspicion. I mean, not if you quote Ellen White, but if you say it yourself. To say we can know some things about God and morality outside the Bible causes some people to say, well, we're diminishing the Bible or we're sidelining it. Um, but the reality is, is the Bible really can't operate without an engagement with natural revelation. Some of the strongest defenders of slavery in 19th century America were those that insisted that morality only came through the Bible. We have to hold the Bible up high, and because the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn slavery by word, that therefore we cannot either. And we, in fact, must allow it and even defend and support it. Uh, our pioneers said, no, the Bible provides a central moral system, but it also provides principles and guidance to larger moral arguments that we can make outside the Bible. And our pioneers were willing to make slavery a test of fellowship. If you weren't willing to give up your slaves or if you were wanting to promote and defend slavery, Ellen White said you shouldn't be part of our church. And that's totally true. In case any of you listeners were wondering, in Testimonies, Volume 7, page 359, she says, Unless you undo what you have done, speaking about uh, slavery, it will be the duty of God's people to publicly withdraw their sympathy and fellowship from you. We must let it be known that we have no such ones in our fellowship, that we will not walk with them in church capacity. So it's a very clear acknowledgement that there are sources of moral reasoning that aren't contrary to the Bible, but are consistent with the Bible and, and, and outside the Bible that we must take very seriously. And so these two points were quite critical in, in viewing ourselves not as fundamentalists, but as conservative Christians taking the Bible seriously, but also taking God's other sources of truth seriously. Okay, so thank you for sticking around for this section that was mainly dense and descriptive. I know it's been a lot of theoretical information. I promise it's worth it because now we're going to move on to some more practical ways that this relates to our church today. So what are some other issues with a fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible? That's a, that's a great question because we're having some discussion in our circles today about should we take the plain reading of Scripture in interpreting, or is there some other way of reading the Bible that is appropriate? It's interesting, if you do a study, a word search, you will find that Ellen White never uses or endorses the term plain reading of Scripture. She'll talk about the plain teaching of Scripture, but that's a slightly different thing. She'll also say, take the Scripture as it reads, um, and I think that's also a different thing. Of course, she didn't want you changing the meaning of Scripture, right? You need to take it seriously as it reads. But that's different than, than the plain reading. The plain reading tends to cause people to read the surface reading of the Bible as the true reading of the Bible. And this point is actually Dr. Miller's third reason why Adventists cannot be fundamentalists, because 
we interpret the Bible through the context of the principles from the whole of Scripture, rather than just single little verses here and there pulling it out of its context and teaching some wild idea. And that this provides an overall hermeneutic, not that causes us to disregard certain texts, but causes us to look for deeper meanings, secondary meanings, and uh, interpret those texts in ways that are consistent with God's character. So let me give a couple of examples. If you believe just in the plain reading of Scripture, it has a tendency to cause you to read into it the meaning that your society at the time ascribes to it. And if you're at all into sort of postmodernism and Foucault, it means those that have the power are giving the meaning to the words. And then it, so then you become um, conservative and protecting the existing structures of society. And in his paper, he gave an example that in 19th century America, society had a meaning for the word slavery. And it was a black person who worked for free, who had been kidnapped, or who had been the descendants of someone kidnapped from Africa. So you see the word slave, and then you see the word slave in the Bible, and it says, slaves obey your masters. Well, the plain reading would suggest that, in fact, the Bible supports slavery, and some Christians argued this. But if you went deeper than that, if you said, no, there's a context in the Bible and there's a moral government of love that God has and slavery seems awfully against that, then let's look a little more closely, not just at the word, but the context and the system behind it. And you would discover that, you know, really slavery in the Bible was more like a uh, indentured servant system of, of economic serfdom and not like the chattel kidnapping racial slavery of 18th and 19th century America. In fact, man-stealing and racial slavery was uh, spoken against in the Bible. Um, And so it caused our pioneers to go deeper, to read those words somewhat differently. And another good example is hellfire, the smoke of their torment shall ascend forever and ever. Well, if you're a 19th century American, forever and ever, you have the Greek concept of eternal ages without end, then you're going to believe in eternal hellfire, and that's what the Bible teaches. But our pioneers weren't willing to rest on that concept, and they went deeper because of this inconsistency with God being a moral governor. And uh, they didn't disregard those texts, but they discovered that there were other Hebraic meanings to them that might not be the same as the Greek forever and ever and ever, but uh, would allow you know, the thing to burn until it was no more. These are just a few examples of the depth of our theology as Seventh-day Adventists. If you think about it and you look through our fundamental beliefs, there's not a lot, if any, that have come from a plain, simple reading of the Bible. Every single one has come from thousands of hours of combined studying and research from scholars, theologians, archeologists, psychologists, pastors, and lay people who take time to dig. And as Christians, we value the digging process. And so Nicholas Miller is asking the question, is the plain reading of scripture a legitimate way of arriving at truth? 
I'm actually really proud of my Seventh-day Adventist roots because in a changing world, they discerned a balanced way of interpreting life and God and the Bible and struggling through a lot of the hard questions about how we know truth. And they came to a principle that was a more flexible hermeneutic, one that didn't, again, disregard the Bible, that took the Bible as it reads, didn't do away with any of the language or disregard it, but would go deeper and look at other meanings that the words could possibly, could reasonably hold. And so it made quite a difference in how we approach the Bible and how we approached people in the church and society around us. So Adventism at its core is not fundamentalist. Whew. However, like Dr. Miller said, it still exists in our church. So how do you see fundamentalism playing out today in Adventism? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, if, if you're a fundamentalist, then everything's black and white. And you're more willing to use the political framework of the church to extinguish your enemies and promote your friends. And you're less, um, less willing to trust the overall body of the church as led by the Holy Spirit, um, especially if it starts moving in a direction that you don't think is you know, absolutely right. And when you're funda this is another characteristic of fundamentalism is it's hard to see a proportionality, right? If the Bible says something should be done, it must be done under all circumstances all the time. And if it says it shouldn't be done, then it should never be done under any circumstance. And that position is often held, and, and believe me, I think there are some things the Bible teaches that fall into those categories. But not everything the Bible says is always done under all circumstances. And even within the Bible, flexibility is shown. And we can talk about trivial items like women wearing hats in church or giving each other the holy kiss or, um, you know, these are items that the Bible seems to so show flexibility on, including gender leadership in some instances. Okay, so Dr. Miller, where do you see fundamentalism mostly today in Adventism? fundamentalism is actually, it's not a uniquely North American phenomenon, but this is where it really started. And it tends to um, gain its greatest hold among the white community. Um, the black church, because of its concern for social issues, has actually managed, they're, they're theologically conservative, but they're quite progressive on social issues and in worship styles. And Ironically, the internationalization of the church, which is the big story of the church in the last, you know, 40 or 50 years, you know, in the 1960s, we were like 50% still nearly North American and European, and 50 years later, we're like 5% North American and, and European, and we're vastly more represented in Africa and South America and in the, Asia, and so many people see this as making the church conservative, and it's true, most of the new people coming in are conservative, but this is the catch. They're not fundamentalistic for the most part. Um, the missions around the world started by the church before fundamentalism became a huge influence. And secondly, missionaries by their nature are somewhat pragmatic. We, we think of them as very conservative and zealous folks, and they've committed their life to missions, but they're also cross-cultural people. 
and they understand the importance of translation and the difficulty of absolute certain meaning, and you actually find them somewhat more flexible often than very conservative North American people. And so when I was at the Theology of Ordination meetings um, a couple of years ago, the surprise was that the conservative group here in North America were articulating, unfortunately, some fundamentalist outlooks in defending uh, their view of the role of women in the church and the, and the home. And then the, there was the progressive side, you know, wanting to sort of do away with any gender distinctions. But those from overseas, many of them were not comfortable. They didn't want to be in the progressive group. They weren't in favor of women's ordination. But neither were they comfortable with the sidelining of women that the conservative group seemed to be proposing. So there were a few of us that started a third group, a moderate group in the middle, that essentially uh, said, you know, ordination may not be an ideal for women, but it's not a huge issue that we should split the church over and we should have some flexibility on. And this group had more representation in it than the conservative group and a great deal of representation from South America, Africa, and Asia. And I think it shows that the future of the church doesn't lie in the strict fundamentalism, especially as it pushes for a kind of social conservative fundamentalist outlook, because that goes contrary to the diversity we have as a world church. So what do you think can bring balance in our church right now? And are you optimistic about the future? We need to start treating the Bible as the Bible teaches that it should be treated, rather than what our modernistic, fundamentalistic, absolutist ideas of what the Bible should be. Sometimes the loudest voices in the debates are those from the progressive and the fundamentalist side. But I'm hoping that the more moderate group will gain more of their voice as we can understand these issues more carefully through the use of history. Thank you, Nicholas Miller, for explaining this complicated topic so neatly and tactfully. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nick Osted. Music was created by Blue Dot Sessions, Ketza, John Luke Hefferman. And also, if there are any listeners out there that would like to donate their music to be used in one of the Stuff Adventists Should Know episodes, you can email it to me at nickhosted at gmail.com. That email will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something. <laughs>